Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Return to normalcy this week with the standard two-guest lineup. Joel Shalit explains what's driving Israel's war on Gaza, and Amy Schiller offers a critical view of the philanthropy game. The news and imagery from Gaza are horrifying. What is motivating Israel's brutality, which seems unhinged even by its own bloody standards? To investigate that, we're joined by my longtime friend and frequent Behind the News guest, Joel Shalit. Joel is an Israeli-American journalist now living in Turin after over a decade of living in Germany. Few of us have two homelands. He's in exile from both. Joel is the editor of The Battleground, which aims to be a voice of calm truth-telling on European society and politics. He also comments on EU, German, and Italian affairs for the Israeli broadcaster I-24 News. His books include Israel vs. Utopia, The Anti-Capitalism Reader, and Jerusalem Calling. Joel Shalit. What are Israel's goals in this war on Gaza? It's kind of hard to read sometimes, other than just a ride of destruction. The government has signaled that it, at the very least, wants to level and reoccupy Gaza. It's not clear to what degree it will have to adjust to the fact that there will still be people there and that they're going to need social services and housing and health care. We don't know what they're going to do about that. This is an extremist government full of people who would be very happy if Gaza was fully ethnically cleansed. And some of those people are going to have to be accommodated by Netanyahu on a certain level. So those of us on the Israeli left are waiting with bated breath to see what that's going to look like. It's very clear that the Americans are not going to get in the way of anything that we try to do. You know, it's funny you should say Israeli left and you always say we, but you're in Italy. <laughs> How many of you are left in Israel? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm in an idealized space. Uh, it's, it's certainly a lot more comfortable here, but it's a part of Israeli politics that I've stood on my whole life since the first Lebanon War when I was a teenager and dodged the draft. I still do consider myself in that same place. And when I do commentaries on Israeli television, it's usually the space that I occupy in the conversations. But I, uh, the second part of my question, how many of you are there left? <laughs> That's your question. <laughs> with an influence on the political situation, it seems like your position within the country is just totally marginal. Yeah, it is. I mean, but again, when you, you know, read Israeli opinion surveys, for example, a recent one that was uh, uh, just published by the Israel Democracy Institute, the survey asked what people's political affiliations were, and there was a category for people on the left. And 74% of those who were polled, interviews were conducted uh, at the end of November, 74% of those interviewed indicated their support for resuming the offensive. So I think in an Israeli context, there are people who still legitimately identify themselves as progressives, as being on the left, but support the war in Gaza. Returning to the topic of the Netanyahu government, uh, which is a horrible thing, of course, you said uh, forces within his government. So who exactly constitutes the coalition or what is his base? What is his constituency? Netanyahu is leading uh, a coalition of uh, settler and religious parties, uh, extremists religiously across the board. And the uh, religious parties have become increasingly Kahanist in their, in their outlook. I mean, you don't have to study the ultra-Orthodox community very deeply to know that it's po very politically conservative, whether it's in Israel or the United States. And there's been a kind of a meeting of minds between the ultra-Orthodox and the settlers, who are modern Orthodox and not necessarily ultra-Orthodox in, in their religious component, that has given uh, Netanyahu the ability to form a coalition government that has lasted now over a year. And, you know, Likud has morphed from being this nationalist revisionist party to, for a while, a neoconservative party that was nationalist and is now, to a certain degree, indistinguishable from its both its religious and settler partners. 
the settlers and the ultra-Orthodox are still a minority of Israel's population. So Netanyahu must have to have some support among the broader populace. Who are they? The settlers and the religious community have become more culturally and politically influential in Israel. And you have what's been called the heretification of Israeli society, where the types of religiosity and politics typical of the ultra-Orthodox sector have, and also of the national religious sector, have been more common in the previously secular Israeli mainstream. And so even though they might not be the biggest parties at any given time in Israeli society, they tend to articulate how the zeitgeist has evolved under Netanyahu's uh, authority since 2009. I read a paper the other day uh, about fascist elements in Jabotinsky's thoughts. I mean, the conclusion was that while he was not a full-blown fascist, <laughs> there were tendencies in that direction. But the paper also made the point that going way back, that was a really minority position among the establishers of Israel, and now it's become the dominant one. How'd that happen? Where did um, the rest of Israeli thinking and society go? It depends on who you ask. I mean, there are those who would say that the labor left was also very ideologically and culturally conservative. It just didn't dress itself in those clothes. Uh, Jabotinsky is the father of the modern Israeli right. His fascist politics uh, were very much a predecessor to what became both the politics of the settlers in the national religious camp and the Kahanists in particular. If you were a Palestinian, you would say, in answer to a question like that, the Israelis have simply radicalized as a colonial power through being able to uh, rule as a colonial power for too long. Certainly, there are arguments to the effect that the victory in the 1967 war turned on Israel's religious inclinations in ways that nobody anticipated because of the occupation of biblical territories. There is some degree of truth to that, particularly if you come from the New York area, right? But it's not unreasonable to argue that a lack of resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the occupation, and a lack of an identifiable democracy, particularly at this point, has contributed to a radicalization of Israeli political and cultural identity and made it a fundamentally conservative ethno-state of the kind that people experience it as today. I've been asking a lot of people this question, so I'd be interested in hearing your answer to it. How do you understand the roots of America and unquestioning support of Israel? Uh, at this point, watching Biden is causing a lot of people, even within the Democratic Party, I mean, not even talking about the far left, but you know, liberals and otherwise, are shocked and alienated by the intensity of Biden's support. What do you see as motivating that? What is behind it? I mean, does, does Israel serve the strategic purpose it did back during the days of the Cold War? Biden has a cultural attachment to Israel. Mitchell Plitnik wrote sort of very succinctly in, in, the, uh, in the battleground uh, a few weeks ago that for Biden, Israel will always be this socialist kibbutz in the desert run by uh, Golda Meir. He has a very sort of boomer post-war uh, vision of, of a, a struggling uh, startup country full of uh, well-meaning Europeans. I think that's probably true. But at the same time, I think that Israel still serves some remarkably strong strategic purposes for the United States, for the United States military. We don't know the degree to which the U.S. military has also been instrumental in pushing support for this conflict. Certainly a demonstration of, of ferocity of the kind which the IDF has made in the last few weeks is the sort of thing that the uh, Americans would like to see in the Middle East right now, given their waning influence and their waning power and uh, the rise of Russian influence and power in the region since uh, the Russians landed in uh, Syria in 2015. There is that. I wouldn't be surprised if that point of view held more influence with Biden than not. The Israelis have shown a face of Western power in the region that the Ukrainians have not shown in Ukraine, a kind of ruthlessness and willingness to indulge a bloodbath, which some would say the Ukrainians have not shown and thus have not prevailed in their fight with the Russians so far. There's all kinds of weird reasoning that you could appeal to from a military point of view that would justify 
for that constituency, Israel's behavior in Gaza to date in a geopolitical context. Certainly, Israeli behavior right now in Gaza, the kind of campaign it's been waging, is a dream come true to the European right that want to turn the EU into a, a coalition of independent member states that work together but are ultimately not as tied together as they are now. The talk here in Europe is is just appalling, particularly on the far right, but predictable in the kind of framing that you read in Italian and, and German right-wing newspapers and French right-wing newspapers. The Palestinians represent the Arabs and the Africans that want to get into Europe and and their ruthlessness on October 7 is typical of what Europeans must expect from refugees and, and migrants trying to enter Europe today. The destruction of Gaza is just you know, absolutely breathtaking. You alluded to this earlier, but let's develop the, the, the point. After this bombing, I don't see how Gaza could resurrect as a functioning society. I mean, the physical infrastructure has been destroyed. People have just been so damaged by um, this relentless bombardment. What next? Where does this go? Do they clear out the rubble and the settlers move in? Is that the idea? According to the polling that I've looked at recently, um, 22% of the Israeli public supports the idea of settlers returning to Gaza and reestablishing themselves in the ruins. Why they would want to do that at this point, one can only imagine what kind of toxic cesspool Gaza has turned into as a result of this war. Think of the depleted uranium shells that Israeli tanks might be firing from U.S. stocks. You know, there were a lot of problems in Kosovo after the after the war because of that. And I can imagine the Palestinians are probably going to face even more environmental consequences as a consequence of this conflict. I think ultimately, if Netanyahu can get the uh, Egyptians to agree to take refugees from the war and reestablish them in the Sinai and that there's some kind of Gulf backing to pay for that, that would be his ideal preferred scenario. This this is that kind of war. Uh, I I don't understand how the Americans expect Palestinians to continue to live in Gaza after this war is concluded. There must be some kind of plan to try to appeal to international backers for a redistribution of Palestinians in Gaza around the Middle East. Are uh, well, Egypt and other countries willing to be uh, recipients? I can't speak to that at all. I do know that, that the Egyptians have really not enjoyed this war. And they have repeatedly rejected and made comments to that effect, the idea of relocating the Palestinian population in Gaza in Sinai. I'm speaking with the journalist, Joel Shalit. Israel now, I mean, it's just, well, it's got the support of the United States, but um, it's, it's a pariah in much of the world as a result of this conflict. Do Israelis care about that? I can only speak from the perspective of my immediate family and what we've been talking about throughout this. Most of my colleagues are, are Israeli colleagues are left wing and you know they tend to have the same opinions that I do about this conflict. My family's probably a better barometer and I speak to them regularly. They don't really care, to be quite honest. Uh, they are still furious about October 7th. They are bombarded daily with new information, the, the barbarity of Hamas's attacks on that day are constantly recycled in Israeli news and Israeli political discourse. <laughs> We're getting from the New York Post too. Yeah, yeah, it's well, it's very similar. There's a lot of there's a lot of propaganda in the European press as well. The general presupposition amongst most middle-class Israelis is that they have the right to be, the country has the right to be conducting this kind of military campaign in Gaza. And we'll just have to deal with Israel's um, political relationships after this is a war of survival. So October 7th, I mean, that keeps popping up over and over again. And it was horrible. I'm not going to be one of these leftists who defends what happened on October 7th. On the other hand, there was a history before that. And there's the history after that, that it, it, it's almost like you have to call in a psychoanalyst to talk about like a fixation to heal the, deal with the trauma. Uh, people just get fixed on that thing and not be able to think about anything else. So what what is the explanation? Uh, what gave rise to the events of October 7th in the imagination of most Israelis? There is a general appeal to very basic caricatures of Gaza being populated by ISIS members. And Hamas is, you know, more or less simply a local version of ISIS in, in Israeli discourse. There is a uh, 
a very strong concern that, um, and you, you hear a lot of very, very, very profound criticism of, of Bibi, that he had become too close to Hamas uh, and that he had overlooked uh, or disregarded credible intelligence information that would have led the IDF to have prevented the attacks. Overall, I think there are a lot of very uncomfortable stereotypes of Gaza Palestinians, which are common to Israelis in much the way that Palestinians are themselves misunderstood and, and caricatured uh, across the board in Israeli society. Well, there's some sort of just primal evil expressing itself that doesn't admit of explanation. I remember that whole line after uh, September 11th, too. It's like, to explain is to excuse, or to analyze is to make excuses for. I've encountered that that dynamic, particularly in some of the uh, conversations we've had on I-24 recently. And uh, Israeli journalists will stop and say, no, it's, it's you know... We can't do that. We have to be able to distinguish and, and, and whatnot. But I think on a day-to-day discursive level, it's easier to fall back to racist caricatures of Arabs simply because we have no control over the situation, not over the Israeli government nor over the Palestinians, that, that everybody is simply at the mercy of a crazy political echelon in Israel and a crazy political echelon in Gaza, um, which are uh, dedicated to fighting each other eternally and which we are just subject to indefinitely. And this is a, there's a profound cynicism about politics that I think you will find amongst Israelis. Uh, I mean, this, it's the same cynicism that made that allowed Bibi to get elected with a record low number of of votes uh, last year. I mean, everyone who either did or did not sit out that election and discussed it, the fact that there there were no viable political parties for the left, knew very well that if we got another Netanyahu government, it could very well end up this way. I, you know, as, as we've often talked about, I grew up with a parent who was a senior member of the security echelon for most of his life. And he always predicted that Bibi would stay in power forever and that it would end very badly. And this is exactly what I think a lot of Israelis know and feel, but it doesn't necessarily translate into a progressive politics, not the kind that we saw, for example, in the protests against uh, Netanyahu's judicial coup in the months leading up to the war. One would have hoped that it would have translated into something different than the kind of politics we're seeing that are a response to this conflict. But these racist responses, these pro-war responses that we're seeing in Israeli polling data reflect the fact that being against the judicial coup was not a guarantee of being on the left. Well, yeah, a lot of those folks had very bad attitudes towards Palestinians and were you know, pretty much supportive of the whole policy, weren't they? Yes. I mean, I think I think dis- there is a disproportionate racist default, you can assume, even in social protests in Israel, that shouldn't or wouldn't be there necessarily in a Western context, either in the United States or in Europe. Uh, I, I, a good example was uh, I went to one of the early protests uh, near my stepmother's house, and I had to listened to a lecture by um, an Israeli general, uh, or retired Israeli general, Moshe Yalon, who especially distinguished himself for his barbarity during the Al-Aqsa Intifada. Yalon is always a subject of of ridicule um, on the Israeli uh, progressive end of things, but still the idea that he would be uh, addressing a crowd, a, a huge crowd of maybe 200,000 Israelis talking about democracy and fascism was really hard to stomach. He was the last person that I would expect to have any kind of ideological leadership on the subject. But that's going to happen in a country in which the military is 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 uh, so much a part of our everyday lives. Some of the foreign reaction has been very curious. On the one hand, we see uh, unprecedented levels of protest, repeated demonstrations against the war in cities around the world, including the U.S., which has been, you know, at a, at a level that's really surprised me, with Jews very prominently in the lead of a lot of the protests. Yeah, so yeah. that's different from what we would have seen 10 or 20 years ago. On the other hand, we're seeing this incredible crackdown on dissent, people losing their jobs, uh, this, all this stuff about um, campus anti-Semitism in the U.S., but at the same time, also in the, the, the government of Germany, like practically criminalizing support for Palestine. 
what's going on here? How do you read this the intensity of the official crackdown uh, combined with an unprecedented level of uh, popular criticism? This is a very good question. I mean, I'll, I'll speak from the perspective of somebody who spent most of the last 14 years in, in Germany. There is a profound fear in Europe that the uh, protests against the war in Gaza uh, will somehow disturb the political equilibrium and serve as a vehicle to enfranchise minorities in new ways. And certainly, if you go to a lot of these demonstrations, I've been to a bunch here in Italy, the multi-ethnic nature of these protests is, is unmistakable. This is a different Europe, an ignored Europe, not necessarily exclusively Arab or Muslim Europe, but immigrant Europe, um, taking uh, to the to the streets to protest this war. There are, of course, middle-class white intellectuals, college students, journalists at these events, but there is a distinctly multicultural character to these protests, which is no surprise since a lot of it follows on the very big Black Lives Matter protests we had here in Europe a couple of years ago, which were very looked very similar. Uh, and so I think that part of the negative response to them on the part of officialdom is this is not a political dynamic that elites want to see happening in Europe at this at this point in time. They disrupt the march towards, you know, a populist Europe towards a reconciliation of the center European center right with the far right, you know, such as that kind of a flirtation that's been taking place in Brussels between the European People's Party and Giorgia Maloney uh, and Fratelli d'Italia. The protests are a sign of a new left in, in potential making to many observers on the right, both within politics and within the media. As far as the Germans go in particular, I saw the beginnings of that in Germany over the last few years. I remember quite distinctly being asked to speak at events by German friends and um, uh, in Berlin uh, that were involved in Israel advocacy and also in peace advocacy between Israelis and Palestinians. And when I came out sounding like a leftist, they were shocked. I would have to ask them, you have Palestinians in the room. You know, these people are our allies in building something different in the Middle East. And this is how we would all respond. Absolutely floored. Even in peace circles, peacemaking, pro-peace circles in, in Germany, for example, there is an instinctive bias towards Israelis and Jews. I'm still friends with all these people. I can talk candidly about it. We had some good critical discussions after events like this. But there is simply a growing bias towards Israelis as and towards Jews as better Middle Easterners than Arab migrants. And it is reflective. We're still being orientalized as Jews. It's typical anti-Semitism in that regard. But there is a sense that we represent the kind of immigrants they want from the Middle East and not necessarily uneducated Arab laborers and and religious Arabs to boot. I've lived in Berlin through the refugee crisis. I met a lot of refugees, many of whom ended up sleeping on my street in Neukölln. And I gave them furniture and clothes with my wife. And at least half the people that I met were ethnically Palestinian and professionals, people who had like medical degrees and were lawyers and engineers, they didn't fit this ridiculous German stereotype of all these people being jihadists coming here to Europe to covertly uh, represent ISIS. But this is the vibe that prevails in Germany right now. And I think that the, re- the reason why you have a center-left government taking up this kind of politics at this point in time under Schultz is because they think they can co-opt some voters from the AFD on the one hand and, and, and embrace the anti-immigrant mood that has mostly been driven by Ukrainians arriving in Germany and, and not Syrian Palestinians, right? The center-left has been in the process of co-opting a lot of populist racism in Europe and the the pro-Israeli stance, the anti-Arab Islamophobic stance of the German center-left at this point in time is an expression of that. And then finally, um, it's become an issue for the right now, a unifying issue, um, siding with Israel I mean, around the world. The right, of course, is a tendency that has a long history with anti-Semitism. How do these two um, strands of right-wing thought merge with each other in this intense and uncritical support of Israel? The European far-right parties that embrace Israel from 
you know, Lega Salvini to Meloni to Alternative for Deutschland and Heert Wilder's party. If you poll their membership, most of them will tell you that they really don't like Jews and they don't think that highly of Israel. But what they admire is different. And that is that there is a kind of bold ethnocentrism that they identify with Zionism that makes them feel like they can somehow appropriate that for uh, sanitizing themselves in public so that they don't look like typical Nazi or fascist parties. On the Israeli end of the continuum, on the uh, on the Israeli right and far right, there is an appreciation that that is what they're doing and that they are not our friends. But there there is a strategic tie-up that has to be had because we've always wanted to transform European liberalism and European predilection to Arab and Palestinian rights to be more in favor of us. And so this is this is what's going on. It's fascinating. It's depressing. But I think what we have to understand, particularly looking at what's going on in Germany right now, is this is not just the sole domain of the far right anymore. The left has appropriated this tactic because they think that somehow it will allow them to continue to prevail in light of cascading public opinion in favor of far-right parties like in Germany, Alternative for Deutschland. I was Joel Schlitt, editor of The Battleground, which you can find on the web at thebattleground.eu. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of I Can't Stand It, a Lou Reed song performed by Hoboken's second greatest musical act after Sinatra, The Feelies, on a new album of live Velvet Underground covers. Next, The Philanthropy Racket. That's not my guest term, that's mine. I find it almost entirely a scheme for keeping the rich rich and aligning social policy with their preferences. Her critique shares some of that view, but is more constructive. Amy Schiller is just out with The Price of Humanity, How Philanthropy Went Wrong and How to Fix It, published by Melville House. She spent 15 years working in the trade, which is where she began developing her critique. Aside from having written this book, Amy Schiller is a visiting scholar at Dartmouth. Amy Schiller. At the beginning of your book, you talk about uh, some ancient history, the concept of philanthropy in Rome, and then how the Christians changed that. Could you just recount that uh, ancient history for us before we get into the contemporary variety? This is one of the most pivotal shifts when I was writing what first was my dissertation and then was this book. In the ancient Greek society, philanthropy, as we would describe it today, was a practice called eugurtism, where uh, the nobles sponsored the civic life of the city, and they sponsored libraries and banquets and even like major infrastructural projects that take this with all the provisos of um, the exclusionary elements of ancient Greek society, meaning like women and slaves. But they were open and accessible to every citizen. They were meant to benefit everyone who was able to be in the orbit of the city. And they were very place-based and they were very, the audience was their local community as the sort of source of their honor and their gratification. What changed is Augustine and a number of his peers 
talked about shifting the focus of giving away from one's kind of worldly community and into a more abstract uh, description of the poor, the poor, the needy, the masses of people to whom Christians were supposed to give alms um, and sort of reject the model of building spaces um, in one's own city, but really just commit to the poor writ large. And why did they have to do that? Because that was how they would be rewarded most favorably in their salvation in heaven. It was in fact the greatest, and this was huge when I discovered it, it was the uh, giving to the poor was the best return on investment. So this is like this really early moment of saying, oh, giving is really an investment in something for the donor, one's own, whether it's one's salvation or one's gratification or whatever you might call it, one's sense of moral worth. Really, this is an instrumentalization of poor people for the donor's eventual benefit, as opposed to non-means-tested universal goods um, that were funded, not without their own problems, but that were funded by the philanthropy of of the ancient Greek model. So the rich get a double benefit here. They get a heavenly reward, but also they get the virtue signal while they're on this earth. Exactly. Exactly. A great deal, as they might say. Yes. That's a win-win, as they also say. You alluded to something um, which is important in today's philanthropic landscape, venture philanthropy and philanthrocapitalism and all these hybrids. So yeah, talk about that uh, branch of the, the trade. They're descendants of this sort of Augustinian worldview of like giving as this investment in an eventual reward for the donor spans low these many centuries. In the book, the inheritor of this tradition is Bill Gates. But Bill Gates is an exemplar of this whole way of thinking. And he has quotes from him that make him sound like an absolute robot, like he's missing essential human circuitry. And he really and he prides himself on that too, right? Where he says like, well, I don't want to just give for some emotional reason, this isn't a, a retail business. This is a wholesale business. Like he really speaks in totally marketized terms about giving as sort of another form of investment. And that really carries through this 30-year period, I would say, is like in the 1990s through today. And I think it tracks in many ways the emergence of tech wealth, which is to say our billionaires, our wealthiest uh, philanthropists are people who come from this milieu of engineering the world, engineering it in this very like abstract and detached way, which isn't to say that rich people are like, you know, down in the trenches of everyone. It's just to say there's something uniquely deterritorialized and kind of abstracted about the creation of tech wealth that sort of lends itself to a view of the world that says, ah, if we can only like create the right design or create the right optimized supply chain or something, like we'll solve this big social problem that in fact is like a power contestation, which is something they'd really prefer to sidestep and find some like technocratic solution to. So philanthrocapitalism and venture philanthropy are all different phases of that way of thinking, which is to basically say, oh, wow, like this is the way I've made my wealth. So this is how I'm going to save the world. But also now that the Soviet Union has fallen, capitalism is triumphant and surely capitalism can solve all of the world's problems. So you have this kind of commingling of two like world historical streams of the emergence of tech wealth and the global dominance of free trade and global capitalism um, that sort of lend themselves to a view that philanthropy is just yet another sort of triumphant extension of the market um, of free market solutions to everything of the neoliberal world order. And you also uh, quote Bill's ex-wife, Melinda. She's somewhat less robotic. She has a more humane streak, but she, despite that, comes back to the Bill view of the world. Right. Well, she says uh, women get the best yield. It's almost like even someone who wants to be more humane um, in her view of giving is so entrenched in the neoliberal vocabulary of like everything is framed in cost benefit analysis, economic um, and financialized vocabulary. And that's something I noticed writ large in philanthropy when I was working in fundraising. It kind of that's what disturbed me early on, working for nonprofits and seeing that we were no longer using language about community or obligation or values, but really we were talking about like quantifiable impact. That's all people wanted to know. There was no a priori obligation. It was only like, show me where I'm going to get the best deal. Show me where I'm going to get the best return on my investment. And that to me seemed like, oh, that's troubling because this is a way of using money that could contradict 
the totalized market view of the world, but instead it's just sort of being sublimated right along into it. And that's one of the things that led me to write the book. And of course, Bill uh, did not distinguish himself when it came to COVID vaccines. <laughs> no. I, well, I note in the book that the motto of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is every life has equal value. And I don't know if anyone else sort of picked up on the creepy overtones of that, which is to say that you've priced human life. If you say it has equal value, it's to say that you've determined what that value is and that one can determine the value of human life. It's not to say all life has value or all people are valued or valuable. It's like equal value implies that there's some kind of settled determination of what it is. Uh, at least that's my read of it. And I say that because it seems to have come out in the COVID vaccine funding where uh, Bill Gates really went to great lengths to prevent research accelerators and research collectives that would have operated on knowledge sharing and really sharing the formula for the COVID vaccine without IP protection that would generate profit for corporations. So in a way, like, yes, he funded the vaccine, but in a way that, as we now see, like ultimately was going to ensure the integrity of the pharmaceutical industry, um, as opposed to the kind of disruptive potential that making a vaccine widely and freely available might have had. Well, you know, this is a guy who did make his fortune based on intellectual properties. I guess he's being consistent. Right. So he was very well suited to accomplish this. <laughs> you don't mention this specifically, but I recall um, when Alice Tepper Merlin launched her Shopping for a Better World book and project. I thought at the time that that was a symptom that the world was taking a dark turn in politics. But there is this belief that the right kind of products can also um, have a philanthropic uh, service. Yeah, that's sort of the downstream version. That's like the non-billionaire version, I think, of this same ideology, at least that's how I see it, of capitalism can save the world, right? If you can, if you use your money in the right way with the power and the so sort of like sovereign consumer power, the sovereign investor power, like you can be the hero. You've used your money in the right way to save the world. And the, the sort of shopping for good thing is yet another conflation of market activity with giving, um, as opposed to giving sort of standing as a counterpoint to the modes in which we're engaging with money all the time. It just becomes another extension and another sublimation of that. Yeah. You know, we think of philanthropy as a step, at least in some direction towards decommodifying life, but this is a recommodification of, of philanthropy. Yes. An eager recommodification, a celebratory. Yeah. A strange transformation. You know, I, um, when I last bought a new iPhone, I wanted a red one. I'd always been black. So I ordered a red one and then discovered I was an, a parenthesis R-E-D product. <laughs> <laughs> it was very yes. distressing to learn. But, I know. Uh, You're part of the problem, Doug. <laughs> I know. I, I, I plead guilty. It's sitting right here next to me, just um, reproaching me. <laughs> the extreme version of this tech stuff uh, has come into the news because of uh, Sam Bankman-Fried. What about effective altruism? What does that mean? Who, who are the perpetrators? Uh, what does it all mean? Right. So effective altruism, it looks to me like the delta of this sort of utilitarian stream that I sort of put at the start of it at Augustine of saying like, okay, what's the best return on investment in terms of redemption? It's poor people. Then you have it kind of reemerging in such force, um, not to say that it ever went away, but it really pronounces itself such force with Venture philanthropy, philanthropic capitalism, the Bill Gates view of everything, again, the neoliberal life view. So effective altruism just is the absolutist expression of that utilitarianism that says the only way we can know that we're doing good, the only thing that matters is if we can get the numbers to prove it. And the numbers mean how many life years have we extended for people and how many importantly productive working life years have we extended for people? I, the way I read it is there's a sinister undertone of, yes, of course we want to save humanity, but what we really want to do is save the species of humans for a productive labor force, right? A kind of global labor force management operation. So it's not so much benevolence as a kind of deeply self-interested benevolence that has ultimately the, the aim of creating benefit for the donor class. Now you asked who the main players are. Peter Singer is the philosopher at Princeton who kind of kicked this off with his thought experiments about if you could save a child from a drowning and you don't, that that's somehow ethically 
compromising for you. So therefore, if we could save lives and we don't, if we don't use our money to maximize the number of lives that we're saving and we don't do that, that we are ethically compromised. Therefore, we should be at all times looking to save the maximum number of lives. Like he just got to this very rigid theory of like what constitutes an ethical use of money. It is saving the maximum number of lives. This got traction with a group of bankers who, of course, I'm sure all, you know, many of whom went to Princeton or possibly Oxford where it also took off, who look at this as like, oh, well, if we're looking to just maximize yield and yield is measured by dollars that produce the best quantified result, then I should just go earn as much money as possible. This movement was called earn to give. I should go earn as much money as possible. And then I will give it to the most effective charities, effective defined as saving the maximum number of lives. And then that means that I will have optimized um, the good that I do in the world. So you can kind of follow this bouncing ball and see how we get to a Sam Bakeman Freed, who was very involved in effective altruism. And that was a big part of his profile and his like veneration when he was still a respectable citizen, that if the ends justify any means, right, if it means if like working for a hedge fund is actually like being super ethical, then why not creating a giant crypto Ponzi scheme to generate as much money because Sam is the best steward of it. He's putting it towards all the best causes because he's all of this is sort of resting on affirming the intelligence and the hubris and the arrogance of the people who identify as effective altruists. So that's sort of the short version of like effective altruism is really just the expression of, okay, where I'm deeply utilitarian, that means it justifies anything that I do that produces those utilitarian ends. Um, so that means that I'm the most ethical person by stealing from everyone and giving it to where I think it's going to do the best, the most good, because they're just not smart enough to do that. It is a very like Stanford, Silicon Valley view of the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of this is. And I think that's what I'm, that's a big part of what I'm tracking is how that view of the world has permeated the vocabulary that even, you know, you have Sam Bankman free, but then you have all of us buying like the red phone. And even if we don't know that that's gross and icky, like we still think, oh, I bought Tom's shoes. Like that's good for me. It's like, it's, it's infected all of us to a certain degree. I'm speaking with Amy Schiller, author of The Price of Humanity, just out from Melville House. You uh, offer some interesting contrasts between two personalities, Carnegie and uh, Mackenzie Scott. Well, first of all, uh, Carnegie's philosophy. Raising wages it would be a waste. It's better to make a lot of money and give it away. Um, so on, on the surface, at first glance, you know, he just seems like a greedy capitalist uh, and uh, egomaniac. That's part of it. But then also he, he, the kinds of things he funded – were not your standard philanthropy. Uh, yeah, let's talk about the, the contradictions of the Carnegie personality. Right. Well, the great irony that I landed on is that Carnegie, though he was a greedy capitalist, um, in many ways, what he did with his philanthropy acted against the market, whether he intended it to or not, by creating these libraries that decommodify access to books, access to knowledge. And I think some of that is drawn from his biography, where previously, libraries, you had to pay a fee to be able to access them. And he couldn't afford the fee when he was a young lad. He wrote a letter to, the, I believe, the Pittsburgh Gazette protesting this policy and was given a free library card. So he had the sense of like, okay, things need to be freely accessible in order for, you know, I'm sure he thought like in order for people like me who are going to be like self-made heroes to uh, have the means to cultivate themselves. But nevertheless, the result is that we have libraries today that are anchors of communities that are one of the few places that people can go and just be without having to purchase anything or be consumers that decommodify access to knowledge um, and to access to a lot of things in the world. And so there's something actually ironically radical about what Carnegie did, what the result of his philanthropy is, is creating this democratization of beauty and democratization of a certain infrastructure that Mackenzie Scott, for all of her much more ambivalent feelings about capitalism, has yet to kind of find a way to do. She's an interesting character. She seems like an interesting, thoughtful person that is not like your standard you know, Silicon Valley money. Um, so yeah, how is she different? What's her style of philanthropy before we launch into a critique of her? Yes, perfect. So what Mackenzie Scott does is she puts together, she has a team at Bridgespan. It's a consulting firm that I'm sure she's given them a mandate that basically says like, I want to give to organizations that are serving marginalized communities that are providing 
lots of social service needs. So she'll give to health clinics and she will give to law clinics um, and she will give to community centers, all this like very locally based, very grassroots, not glamorous, not, you know, not going to galas at the Met. So that's already uncommon to have that kind of focus. The most important thing that's uncommon is that once her team sort of comes back to her and says, all right, here's the hundred organizations that we vetted, where we know that they're going to put this money to great use for their communities, so and so on and so forth. Those organizations all get a call that say, you've been given, a, it could be a million dollars, it could be, a, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, but either way, it's unrestricted. And that's huge for nonprofits, because so often they're jumping through hoops to just try and get the donors to believe that somehow like their money is going to satisfy whatever the donor's like curiosity or interest is. It's really donor centric. So to get it unrestricted is a godsend to these places. So it's very unusual in her, her focus. She's not like solving big problems. She's not going on, she's not giving to elite organizations and she's giving unrestricted funding. And I think both of those are incredibly admirable and they really do a good job of decentering her as the donors really is not about somehow glorifying her ability to like solve a big crisis in the world. She's like, I just want to give this money away to people and I don't need to design the strategy any more than just like find good places for me to give it to. So all that's pretty remarkable. Uh, Of course, all the money comes from a machine for extravagant exploitation. (laughs) Right. Of course, that's that's part of the problem is that giving money away, even at the fastest rate in history, which is, I think, another thing I should note about her, she's giving it faster away faster than anyone ever in history. She may not be able to even keep up her pace faster than her Amazon dividends grow. So I think if she wants to actually intervene in systemic injustice, she'd have to get more confrontational and aggressive with almost a political strategy. Um, And by that, I might mean some like formal political giving in terms of candidates or parties or what have you. But I also sort of mean like the kinds of things that she funds, it might be worthwhile for her to intervene at the systemic policymaking level um, with advocacy nonprofits to try to do just that. Well, in many ways, this kind of philanthropy is an alternative to or even an obstacle to um, actual political transformation. Yeah, absolutely. I I actually think philanthropy is a very bad tool for political transformation because it is so compromised um, in all the ways that we sort of discussed. I think it's great for creating spaces and places and institutions that cultivate people as people and as citizens who then sort of engage in the in political contestation and political negotiation. But I don't think it's a kind of direct tool for confronting unjust policies or sort of an unjust political economy. I think that the only way to do that is with political solutions. Okay, so now let's talk about reforming the thing. We always try to reserve the last five minutes for the what is to be done question. So you have uh, several ideas for how to reform it, and you offer two models of uh, people who uh, offer different ways of approaching the the issue, LeBron James and uh, Jane Addams. What do those two tell us about a better way of doing philanthropy? Jane Addams is founder of Whole House in Chicago, and LeBron James, they both created spaces with Whole House and with LeBron's I Promise School and the village and the community center that he's funded in Akron. They created spaces that affirmed their beneficiaries as full people, not as like laborers that they were so beneficently, you know, training to become better, more productive workers or somehow have more like sustainable lives, but that they are giving them the means for community, for culture, for self-expression, for recreation, and that they are valuing them as more than just their labor power. That's one thing that I think really connects the two. In the case of LeBron and to some extent Adams, so Adams was actually quite politically active um, in policy change. What LeBron does is he partners with the Akron City Schools. So his school in Akron is not a charter school, which is quite unusual for a donor of his stature. Those are very trendy as for reasons we may all know. Um, but he partners with the public school. It's publicly governed. There's a collective bargaining agreement for its teachers. All of that is great. So there's a way in which there's an equilibrium between public goods and philanthropic supplements, which is what he and his foundation offer in the form of lots of wraparound social services. There's a barber shop for parents of the children who are there. Every kid gets a bike and a helmet. They've created this really beautiful space with lots of enrichment activities. 
I like the balance that that strikes. And in the book, I try to expand on that and say, we do need a more equitable political economy. And we need philanthropy to live in this lane where it sort of nurtures the thousand flowers that can bloom, where it kind of affirms everyone's full humanity in a way that even government money doesn't always have the the leeway or the time span to do. So I would like both forms of abundance. Um, so I would like a more equitable political economy. I talk about people being paid a giving wage, um, where instead of beyond a living wage, where people can support themselves, I'd like people to be paid enough where they could have the discretionary income that they could afford to donate to something that matters to them. There's other tax reforms that I think are important for democratizing giving. And all of this, I think, is in service to having both the abundance of a robust social safety net and the abundance of private generosity that builds things that really affirm all of our humanity. Well, you propose a catchy slogan, government for bread, uh, philanthropy for roses. What do you mean by that? Yes, that really sums it up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that divide's never going to be quite that neat, but the idea is that like our government should really be providing for the basic requirements of justice, right? So that would mean housing and food, and um, public transportation and education and public health, the, the means of a dignified life, healthcare, of course. Which, incidentally, would reduce the fortunes of all these, you know, big time philanthropists. It would reduce the fortunes and you, and I still, it's interesting, there was a Twitter thread some months back that was like, what do countries with social safety nets use GoFundMe for? And the answer was creative projects. And essentially, like, actualization, right? There's still room for private money to play a role in helping people do things that are ambitious and risky, not to the exclusion of public support for those things. It's just to say like, there should be a social safety net so that we have the basics that kind of render us all citizens on equal footing with one another to some extent. And then we have our our roses, our philanthropic supplements of culture and recreation and art and just spaces to be together that are so sorely in need right now. That was Amy Schiller, author of The Price of Humanity, just out from Melville House. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, another track from the Feelies Live VU covers album, This What Goes On. Till next week, bye. <laughs>